and welcome to the Circular Economy Podcast, where we find out how circular approaches make a better business and a better world for you, your partners and your customers. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those inspiring people who are making the circular economy happen. Rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. We'll find out how they're using circular principles to create value, increase resilience and reduce risk to make a competitive, sustainable organisation. You'll find the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and useful resources. Now, on to this episode. In today's episode, I'm talking to Katie Beverly, Senior Research Officer with Eco Design Centre PDR. Katie's based at Cardiff Metropolitan University in Wales and describes herself as a critical friend of the circular economy. We dig into eco design principles to find out more and explore how eco design could add value to circular solutions. Katie explains the benefits of user centered and systems thinking approaches, and we even talk about designing for bees. Let's have a listen. Hello, Katie, and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for asking me, Catherine. So, we first met a couple of years ago at a, um, it wasn't really a circular economy event, but at a, um, a textiles event where we were both speaking. And that was quite interesting because of the linkages between textiles, design and architecture. Um, and, you know, so there are different ways that people get into thinking about design, sustainability, circular economy and so on. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about your background and how you got into eco-design. Yeah, I definitely can. Um, and I'll start by saying I'm the worst of all of those things. I'm a person who's a theorist before actually doing any practice. They always say you should come at this the other way around. But um, my background is not in design at all. I'm a chemist, a trained chemist. Um, and I did my PhD in chemistry. I went and worked in, ph- in pharmaceuticals. I did a postdoc in colour and through the postdoc in colour I somehow got involved with um, people at University of Leeds looking at fashion technology and they offered me a job. Um, Now very quickly when I started working at at Leeds I realised that there was no sustainability at all in the programme. So um, I ended up basically taking on responsibility for introducing the ideas of eco-design and sustainability. So I became more versed in the theory way before I became versed in the practice. And after a while, I started to think, I'm talking about this to people all the time, but I have no practical knowledge. So then I went off and started practicing. So I took on another postdoc at the University of Huddersfield. And then after I'd finished that one, I came to work down here. So I work for Eco Design Centre, which is part of PDR at Cardiff Metropolitan University. And how long have you been there, Katie? I've been there coming up to five years. And how did you, so you you said when you were at Leeds, you realised that there wasn't really any sustainability in the programme. 
how how did you get in, interested in sustainability to begin with? What how did that get onto your radar and and kind of um, you know be one of your values? Well, I think I'd always been interested, and it's a difficult thing as a chemist. You know, you're you think about where are the biggest impacts in in industries, and the chemical industry is pretty high. Um, and it had always been an interest, and it had been covered in my degree course. We'd looked at atmospheric chemistry. But there'd never really been an option to think about employing it elsewhere. And at the time I was working at Leeds, I um, I took on responsibility as part of the learning and teaching management. And we started to look over what would a 21st century design course look like. And one of the aspects that we very quickly started to realize is that it would have sustainability in it. So it was, it sort of brought together something that had been a tangential interest with something that that we felt that the 21st century designers really need to know about. Good stuff. And, and it's becoming more and more obvious that it, it should be central to everything we're designing. Yep. And I think, you know, if I looked now, I think pretty much every design class reflects that. There's a, it may not have it right at the centre, but it's always addressed and always covered now. Mm. Thinking about eco-design and the circular economy, how does eco-design bring those sustainability aspects into product material business model design? Yeah, I mean, the, fir- the first thing is that it always takes a life cycle approach. You know, the first thing that you teach your students as an eco-design lecturer and the first thing you do when you're looking at eco-design of products or services is you start by saying, okay, so what's the life cycle? Where are the biggest impacts and how do you manage those large impacts? And what can we do at the design stage to minimize those impacts? So it puts design front and center of environmental responsibility. Okay, and can you give us some um, sort of principles that people might employ in eco-design? You know, for people who, who haven't come across it, how would you explain it to them? Yeah, so I would say, firstly, you need to think about your product life cycle. And that includes right at the design phase. So the first question that I always ask if somebody says, I want an eco-design product, I, I'm always are you sure that's what you want? Are you sure you really need this? And are you sure you can't get more value from looking at making your your business more profitable in other ways? And in that way, it's very similar to circular economy, looking to exploit service over looking to make more product. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it also, we then also go into, so what are the design phases? How do we select materials? Do we select on environmental impact? Do we lightweight? Do we minimize materials? Um, Do we select based on the life cycle of the product and what do we need? So there are a series of strategies that you apply in terms of your strategic design principles, your materials principles, then thinking about where do you produce things, thinking then through how do you transport them to the shops, thinking about the use impacts during life. So really it's very much... For each stage, there is a set of activity that you can focus on within the um, the framework of eco-design. 
I know one of the reasons you asked me to talk to you is that I've described myself as a critical friend of the circular economy. <laughs> and um, I guess what I mean by that is I really welcome anything that improves the environmental impact of products, services and, the, and wider society. But I still think there are some teething problems. Mm-hmm. And one of my teething issues with, with circular economy is the, the almost optional nature of looking at those impacts. So we have a, it's kind of got almost got a heavy sense on what happens to materials in terms of the end of life loop. But actually, you know, I think bioplastics and um, microplastics and microfiber shedding at the moment. So, for example, microfiber shedding, I think, is probably the best example of an impact that we don't necessarily understand yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens during the life and at end of life of the product. But still, if we're kind of saying, oh, okay, we're going to make products last for longer and we're going to then recycle them at end of life, are we increasing that problem? Um, and because we're not looking at the broader environmental impacts, we might only be looking at material circularity. And if we're not looking at the broader environmental impacts, like, for example, what does that mean for biodiversity? Mm then it's really hard to think about how you describe that as a regenerative and restorative system as the circular economy is couched. Mm. You know, you don't know whether it is or isn't. Yeah, that's a a really good point. And I think, um, as you say, the microfiber shedding research is at early stages. And I heard somebody um, from a UK university, they were saying they could see different levels of, of shedding for slightly different types of polyester but they weren't sure um you know what was causing that and whether it was related to the um the manufacturing process or the um uh you know the the way it was cared for or whatever and they needed to understand more of that so we don't know whether recycled polyester sheds more than virgin polyester or is that you know is the problem the same and it just depends how you knit it together and you know there might be one way of knitting it that's a lot better than the other and that could be applied to both virgin and yeah. recycled materials but you're right those those things really need to be taken into account it's not just about saying it's recycled tick we need to understand yeah. the, the other impacts of of that yeah and i think you know that's another query I have about recycling about um, the circular economy so the circular economy is so much more than recycling and reuse but Mm -hmm. actually you speak to people who maybe aren't as versed in it as as we are they will always say isn't that about recycling and actually that's quite a the clarity of what the circular economy is and what the circular economy could be just doesn't seem to be out there Yes, I agree. I think it's starting to be talked about in other ways, but certainly a lot of people think it's just um, you know more more recycling um, and perhaps the sharing economy, or they see it at the opposite end of the spectrum and think you've got to completely close the loop, which just seems overwhelmingly complicated. And that's exactly. one of the things yeah. I'm trying to. Um, talk about in these podcasts is to break it down into the different parts of the supply chain where you can look to make things more circular either by using more sustainable materials and less less of them you know using materials that are safe for humans and living systems all the way through the cycle 
as well as being either recycled or renewable. Then thinking about the product design, the process design and recovering your own wastes or creating valuable byproducts. And how do you get the product, the components and the materials back at the end of the use cycle so they can be used for something else? And around all of that sits the business model that you use to kind of encourage that to happen. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, I mean, for designers, I think this there is an issue around the clarity of how to design for a circular economy. Um, you know, so for example, if you think about the idea of a circular economy on the global scale, so the only way that, he, here comes the science, um, the only way that the idea of a circular economy works on a global level is if you consider it on a global level, because if you, you've got to consider it as an open system, Otherwise, if you don't consider it as an open global system which gets its energy from solar power, then very quickly the idea that you can just re-loop everything starts to break down. Um, so we consider circular economy as this big global system, and then we start to talk about designing smaller systems within that to contribute towards circular economy goals. Um, but when you start to think about it in terms of materials flows on a global level, you kind of, you, how you then apply that in design starts to become a problem because it, it lacks a sort of future focus. So for, I, this isn't very clear, so I'll try and make it a bit clearer. So for example, if we think about new buildings, so if we take the lead lesson for circular economy, which is to keep materials at their highest utility for the maximum time possible. We'd say, okay, so if we want to apply that to design, we'd say use really good quality materials in long lasting buildings. But we also know that the economy is such and the way in which we want to grow means that we're gonna be making a lot of buildings over this period of time. So we're tying up potentially lots of materials and maybe more materials than you would otherwise within a stock. And actually, when you start to think about that, you think, okay, what other industries might need that stock? And if it's all tied up in housing, what are they gonna do? So we have this kind of, we aren't aligning the life cycle and the lifetime of the product to the design strategies we might choose. Because in that case, it might be more sensible to say, all right, we're going to start with secondary materials then, because we'll engineer it to the quality it needs to be, but actually we're not then tying up so many materials in this, and maybe it's better to use the, um, the virgin materials in something which has a shorter lifetime so that it can actually come into our supply chain. So, but we're not clear. We don't really know which of those is the right approach, and it's really hard to kind of evaluate if I do that, what's the global impact? Mm. So, so, so there are real difficulties for designers about making decisions that work for their small system, but then what the impact is on the kind of larger system. So just like we were saying, if we, if we do that, what's the impact on biodiversity? What's the impact on global resource use? Mm. And we're not, we haven't really tied those things together yet. No, and I guess that's where we need policy to guide us, don't we? So that yeah. the EU, the UK, other 
large organisations are looking further forward, looking at population growth and city growth and the need for housing and infrastructure and and the use of scarce resources, you know, some of the things that are going into high tech and looking at how they might, those sectors might be competing with each other and then setting policies that encourage the right behaviour. Other, otherwise, as you say, everybody's only looking at their own system um, yes. and isn't perhaps aware of the bigger picture because if you're designing a mobile phone, why would you be trying to think about the growth in housing or cars or anything else it's just not you're not going to have time to do that are you yeah exactly I totally agree with you that policy has to play a huge part in really setting the the general agenda but also the more specific agendas you know we can once we know what we need to do we designers can take it on Mm. Um, but at the moment it's almost like there's an expectation that we will understand the long-term impacts of what we do um with a system that we don't really know too much about. So so it's an inter- it's an interesting challenge and it's a great thing. I'm not I, I'm a, like I said before I'm a critical friend of the circular economy. So I want it to succeed, but I also want it to succeed in a way that means that we can be confident that the decisions that we're making are the right ones. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. So in terms of examples of eco design or circular economy improvements is there something that that you like to um to use when you explain eco design to people yes um so i have an example that i think covers both actually um and it's done by a good welsh company and seen as we're based in wales i like to to highlight good practice in wales um and it's orange boxes remade program So Orange Box is a contract furniture manufacturer um, and they have um, a lot of, they're a business to business predominantly company and they have a lot of chairs that go out to corporate organisations. And they decided that actually those things, because there's quite a rapid turnover of chairs in corporate organisations, large corporates, uh, they decided there was probably still value left within those chairs. So they introduced a remade programme. And the remade program is a partnership with Premier Sustain in which they return, in which the corporates return chairs back to Orange Box and Orange Box fully restore them back to good as new. And they're sold with a warranty that matches that of a new product. So they started with a chair that they'd been producing for a long time, a chair called the G64. And when they did a study on it, they realized that 80% of that chair was, um, well, 98% of that chair was recyclable. Um, So they looked into the process of recycling it and they realized that they would be able to create new chairs, remanufacture new chairs um, that were 80% recycled and led to 60% savings in carbon emissions. So the chair that they actually produce at the end of that is also 98% recyclable itself. So this can be a continual loop. That's a brilliant example. And I think it brings up the point that often people don't understand about remanufacturing, which is that it's not a substandard, uh, you know, kind of slightly refurbished type of product. Often it has exactly the same warranty as the new product. And when you look at it, it's, you know, it's it's very much the same and it's got the same same quality and the same uh, reliable approach and, and quality approach 
of manufacturing sitting behind it. And yet it can be a way of producing a chair that's much cheaper um, for those people who perhaps aspire to buy the top end brand, but perhaps can't afford it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, it was it's important to Orange Box that the quality of the goods that they give out are seen to be in line with the quality of their own goods. So it's a really important thing from them as, for them as a business. But they've also been really good in that. Um, so down here in Wales, we have a, a piece of legislation that's coming called the Wellbeing of Future Generations. And it pushes our public bodies and our public authorities to be more sustainable in the way that they operate. So Orange Box have got themselves onto the sustainable procurement framework for Welsh government um, and for the public services in Wales. And it's given them the opportunity to actually introduce social value within their, um, their remade service as well. So they've had a couple of projects recently, one with Public Health Wales and one with the North Wales Constabulary, um, where they've been involved in consortia. So the Public Health Wales Consortia was, was RIPE, who were also an office remanufacturing organisation, office furniture remanufacturing organisation, and a company called Greenstream that's a not-for-profit that employs people in long, who are long-term unemployed in areas of social deprivation. And between them, they completely refurbished the Public Health Wales offices um, with um, new carpets or reused carpets, uh, new products, reused products from Ripe and reused products from Orange Box and remanufactured products from Orange Box, which led to about 134 tonnes of carbon dioxide savings across the board. Oh, so, so your CO2 emissions reduced by about 134 tonnes. Whereas with North Wales Constabulary, they refurbished and remanufactured on site. And they also partnered with a wood furniture company who employ people with disabilities. So you're able to introduce more social value through the networks you create as well, particularly in this remanufacturing field and refurbishment field. Yeah, that's fantastic. And lots of widespread benefits throughout the community. And I think for remanufacturing, that's another another benefit that often you can bring more manufacturing to the local area, um, perhaps instead of sourcing things in cheaper economies offshore. Once, once you've got the resources here, it makes much more sense to do the remanufacturing locally. Are there any tips that you can give people if they want to start thinking about eco-design principles? Yeah, I mean, I'm about to now do... Um go away probably from being a bit more of a standard eco-designer to to something that I think is really important in terms of in terms of both eco-design and circular economy um so it's fairly straightforward to basically go and find design strategies for eco-design I mean my my preferred tool is something called the lids wheel which is the life cycle in design wheel and for every stage in the life cycle it will tell you think about these things um, so it's relatively easy to find those sorts of things. And it even tells you at the beginning, think about, do you really need this product? Could you make it into a service? The one thing it doesn't say is, how well are you taking your consumers into account? And how well are you taking the rest of the people that are going to be important in making this into account? So if you make a change, how will it affect your value network? And are you sure that you're not just pushing 
the environmental impact or the resource efficiency that you're saving onto somebody else. So my first thing would be find the important stakeholders and start collaborating with them as soon as you possibly can. And that includes your users. So think about the idea of user-centered design, not only once you've made your product so you can test it with users, but actually even at the point where you're conceptualizing what it should be. It's particularly important now because a lot of circular economy, new business models and particularly new services require a change in consumer behavior. And if you're not confident that that change in consumer behavior meets the needs of the users, then you could launch something and find it's ahead of its time, doesn't quite meet what the market needs right now. And it might be brilliant in five years' time, but in five years' time, you've just thrown five years' worth of money at it. So I think my biggest piece of advice to anybody who's thinking about innovation in this area is get talking to the people that you're both designing for and designing with. So start to collaborate both up and down your value network and, in fact, all across your value network. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. Maybe sometimes if you start with user needs instead of starting with your vision, you can end up um, where, and I can't remember um, the exact quote from Henry Ford, but he was talking about, you know, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, it would have been, um, you know, faster horses. instead of which he invented a car (laughs) yeah and that's certainly true but this is why user-centered design is great because you don't ask what people want Um, so if you if you use standard design techniques you or standard um engagement techniques you might interview somebody you might have a conversation with them and you might say to them what do you want and that's exactly what they'll do they'll tell you that they want faster horses But actually, if you engage with them, if you watch them, if you give them the opportunity to be creative themselves around the themes, but not necessarily a product, then you can find things like latent needs. You can translate that into more latent needs that you can help to look at what is it that we really need to design here. So there's that kind of direct translation of what is it that you want? Oh, you want this, so I'll design it for you, which I don't recommend because you're the creative and you're trying to basically elicit new ideas from needs not what does the product need to be and then there's this this kind of more engaged more creative approach which allows you to to collate and translate what you've learned from people and their experiences into what you believe the needs are and then test them with that audience yeah, that's that's a great point. So I think that that helps people understand that uh, you know the design process is probably the most critical part, and and thinking through how you're going to approach it and who you need to get involved and what questions you might ask them. You know, it's it's important to really think that that through and think think through. You know how how you make sure you don't just get um, the the faster horses answer. Yeah, exactly. And it's also really important that because, you know, you could, there's a criticism. And in fact, I I read a really interesting article yesterday on bee-centered design, which was really cool, but was talking about if you're human-centered, so if you're using a user-centered process, how do you make sure 
that you're not designing really badly for everything else and for every other system. Do you mm-hmm. know how, if the users are driving the only process or are driving the process, how do you make sure that you're not putting their needs ahead ahead of the needs of the planet? Yeah. Um, so there's a really important stage in that translation process that is about saying, okay, so we want to design something, but actually we need to embed the benefits from an environmental and social point of view right here. So the only t- so the concepts that you then share with your users are inherently better. So there's a that's why you can't just ask the user to say what is it that you want because mm. if the user says I want this and then you give them back something else that has then been almost I suppose eco sanitized they'll go well that's not what I asked for so it does require this kind of more in depth more um, I suppose eliciting needs rather than articulating wants yes yeah and and thinking of designing for multiple stakeholders not just for um, yeah, the business you, or, the, or the user. And you can't expect your users to do that. Although, you know, we're, we're talking about this ourselves at the moment. We're talking about how do you represent all of those different things at the table? Um, and, you know, you could potentially have a design process in which you involve stakeholders. And some of those stakeholders are advocates for, I don't know, the bee population, for trees, for... so. It's something we're exploring right now is how do you make sure that in a, a stakeholder driven design process, one of those stakeholders being the environment, that the environment is adequately represented. Yes. Yeah, that, I think that, that's really important. So when we were talking ahead of the ahead of the um, episode, you were talking about the new Adidas Future Loop shoe as an example of something that's a, a good um, design? Yeah, so I was saying, actually, it's, I haven't really had a chance to evaluate the design, although I like the idea. So the idea is that the, the shoe is made of one material, so should be fully recyclable um, and should be easily recyclable because, actually, you could theoretically argue that some shoes are fully recyclable now, but they require a... a time-intensive and labor-intensive separation process and you know that's going to increase your costs quite a lot so the idea that a shoe just uses the same material and can go in a recycling process is really nice Mm -hmm. i need to look a bit more at it before i could say is this a really good example but what i do think it's a great example of is that they're just about to put this out to beta test so they've got a team of users who are all going to go out and try the shoe see whether it meets their needs, see whether they like it. And it's an example of, okay, here is a product. We're prototyping it. We're showing people what we're up to. And now we're going to beta test it. And we'll make the improvements, but you already know about it. And we'll have had this feedback from users at this point. So it's that thing of once you've got your original idea with your users, keep involving them so they can see the development of the product they can see where you're going next and they can have some sort of stakeholder in it. Yeah, and they're they're probably feeling very involved and are, you know, um going to be excellent word of mouth um marketeers for your for your products as well, because they feel like they've been um, you know, part of the project. Yeah, and there was this really nice um 
so there was an article on LinkedIn about this and a couple of the beta testers were commenting on the article where they were saying, oh yeah, we're going to be trying these, I can't wait, I'm really excited about it. And if you've got that word of mouth going, then the barriers to introducing something new are beginning to reduce. Mm. The last question then before we um, ask how people can get hold of you is who would you recommend as a future guest for the programme? Ah, well, this gives me a chance to talk about my favourite ever eco-designer. <laughs> well, really, actually, it's not eco-design, it's a circular economy example. Um, and that's a company called River Simple, who are based in Wales. Um, they produce hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles, um, and they're headed up by a guy called Hugo Spowers, who is the person I would recommend for a podcast. They started from a blank sheet of paper, and they said, OK, we want a really sustainable business. What does that mean in terms of how we offer these vehicles, in terms of what the vehicle design should be, and in terms of how we should design our governance? So I mentioned earlier about how do you get stakeholders involved that are different, so your society involved, your environment involved. Their governance group has representatives for each of those things, and it has representatives from across a broad group of stakeholders. So at every decision, go through this governance process which in which the planet is represented. Um, and then they've also got a business model where they're offering the car as service. They designed the car based on the idea that they wanted to minimise materials and minimise um, weight so that they could get the savings through weight. And they knew they were going to sell it as a service which influenced the design that they applied. So everything the business has done has been about and has been driven by the desire to be more sustainable. So every aspect of the business has a degree of sustainability in it. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a fantastic project and I'm you know I'm really looking forward to seeing the cars on the street hopefully before too long. Yeah, so they um we were really lucky. We did a project with them which was Looking at um, increased, looking at spreading the responsibility for materials across their value chain. So the idea was that they wouldn't have any of the materials for the vehicle on their balance sheet. They would all be owned by other people. So almost rolling out a sale of surface service model all the way through their value network. Um, and it was just a feasibility study, so we we explored it a little bit, and it's it may get implemented in the future. But as we were doing that, we were kind of learning a lot more about where they want to go. Um, so at the moment, and they're another example of putting the user in the in the process of designing. So they've got the vehicle now, but they still have a service to design. So they've got a prototype service which they're just starting to look at in Abergavenny now. And they've recruited a team of users to test both the product and the service. So when they finish that trial, they're going to have really good data on both how well the car works and also on how much people like it and what the user experience is. So they're doing everything that I would recommend to do. Yeah, it sounds excellent. And I think testing out the, the whole system that supports your product is the key to avoiding unforeseen circumstances, consequences, isn't it, later on? 
Yeah, it's, it can be very difficult, but there are also things that you can do on a much smaller scale. You can find the bits of your business model that either make the biggest environmental difference or make the biggest difference to the offer in terms of how they change the customer experience. So you can trial those with customers. So you don't need to have the money to run a huge trial. You can just test little bits and pieces and experiment within the business model, within the products and within the service. Excellent. So I think that should spark some thoughts in people in terms of, uh, you know, tweaking their business models and how they test things out. Fantastic. So, Katie, how can people find out more about what you and the and the team at PDR do? Where can they get hold of you? Well, they can find us on our website, so which is www.pdronline.co.uk. So we have a blog on there, bits and pieces of information. Um, they can find me personally on LinkedIn, or they can contact me by my email, which is kbeverly at pdronline.co.uk. Fantastic. And we'll put all those links in the show notes in case people don't have pen and paper to hand. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about all the great work that you're doing at PDR. And I look forward to seeing um, the results of some future projects. Catherine, thank you for the invite. I've really enjoyed it and I'm really keen to get the message out there. Great stuff. Thanks, Katie. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains, which takes you through the practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can get in touch via the website, rethinkglobal.info, or send us a tweet at rethink underscore global. Please let us know what you think of the podcast and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>